Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Elb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. Our guest today is Marcos Gonzalez, founder of Vamos Ventures. Vamos Ventures is committed to creating a pipeline of diverse VC investors. Their investments include Sticks, Drinksmith, and Suma. We discuss why Marcos left PE to return to LA and start a VC fund, how he thinks about investing in technology and consumer brands, and what investing in diverse founders really means, and the current macroeconomic climate. Without further ado, here's Marcos. Marcos, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Oh, I really appreciate you taking the time. So you've lived all over North America. Why did you decide to leave private equity, return back to your home in Los Angeles, and start a venture capital fund? For me, private equity was really interesting and exciting. And uh, I I did it from Washington, D.C. mostly. So I was living out there and investing all over the place in the U.S. and Latin America. In my career, I finally got to the point of, and I had already had the experience of doing a startup myself in the late 90s. So I was part of that first internet days era. I just got to a point in my life where I kept looking around and seeing interesting, innovative, talented innovators in my community and other underserved communities, diverse communities, and seeing folks not having access to or not having the support to bring their visions to life. And so I had a bit of a uh, moment a, in my life where I kind of asked myself some questions. And I, I finally concluded that I had done a lot of interesting things. I had worked for BCG in Latin America and the U.S. I had done private equity also in Latin America and the U.S. I had done a startup. I wanted to do something that leveraged that asset management, fund management, deal making, strategy, et cetera, and being Latino in this country. I also sensed that there was a change going on and I felt like it was the right time. So I moved back to California and I thought, I want to be involved in an industry that is really the uh, cradle to, to innovation, new ideas, and how we live our lives, how we work, how we meet people, how we interact, etc. And I want to be part of that from a Latinx diverse lens because I felt that there was a lot of talent that was not being addressed. And I also felt that this was an area that was moving so fast that the longer that um, we weren't doing something here, it, w- it would be it would lead to a bad situation. I left it because for that reason, it was all great, but I really thought there was a new opportunity here to, to, whose time had come. I appreciate that. So there was an opportunity to invest in more entrepreneurs that were from a lot more diverse backgrounds that we previously have seen. Yeah. There's opportunity also. Why specifically Los Angeles as a location? Well, I'm from Los Angeles. I was born and raised in LA. Los Angeles is a Latino city. It's over 50% Hispanic. It is a major city, has a lot of infrastructure, and I think it's also an area that uh, is close enough to San Francisco and Silicon Valley and that whole ecosystem, but far away enough uh, from it as well, where there's some independence and some breathing room. I also felt that it was part of a home to the broader Mexican and Mexican-American community that Miami is not, for example, and New York City is not. 
for example. And so I thought it made sense to be here, you know, for that reason. Also, as I said, I grew up here, so my brothers, my parents are here, and I guess it was it was time to to be close by. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. I've I've been living in LA for the past 10 years. Originally from Washington, DC, which which you spent a lot of time there, which is amazing. So how would you characterize like the overall thesis for Vamos Ventures and what types of kind of opportunities are you trying to uncover on the Latinx community? Um, you know, Mike, uh, a lot of folks ask me if, you know, we're an impact fund or if we, you know, what what is our kind of approach to things? I always say that we're investors first. We're looking for great, scalable, innovative companies uh, that happen to be led by diverse founders or Latinx founders. First and foremost, we're looking for companies that are addressing a real problem or a real opportunity that is not only sizable, but is also severe enough, what we call severe enough. So if somebody's gonna, someone's addressing a problem that is, uh, how do you make a better uh, coffee mug? That's not a severe problem. You know, a lot of people are not looking around, you know, wondering why can't people figure out to, you know, make a better or lighter coffee mug. But if it's something different, like how do we prevent the next million heart attacks? How do we allow, you know, a 60 million person community better access to healthcare? How do we empower entrepreneurs uh, going forward in, into a new society that is uh, increasingly reliant on entrepreneurialism? Those are more interesting. And when you overlap the demographics in the country with these ideas, you cannot help but run into the Hispanic market. And so that's that's how we get to it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, I know you have a lot of technology, primarily B2B investments or you know, a lot of B2B investments. What makes CPG interesting to you since you do have a couple CPG companies? You know, early on, um, I, I, you know, we, we thought that it would be interesting to do uh, some CPG companies. And CPG tech was one of our areas that we wanted to explore. And we invested in a company. In fact, our very first company was Styx, by the way, not led by Latinx founders. So we're not exclusive to uh, Latinx founders. Uh, so Styx is led by two women out in the uh, mid-Atlantic area, out, out of Philly. And really interesting company focusing on women's uh, health and wellness, uh, community, content, engagement, and products. And they've really taken off. What we really you know, liked about them and the idea of CPG Tech was the connection to consumers. However, we've come to the conclusion that the economics for a CPG Tech company are different enough that we are limiting our, our portfolio allocation to CPG Tech companies. We like that they're connected to consumers directly. We like that there's a lot of feedback from consumer behavior to these companies. We like that there's an increasing number of ways to market to and engage with consumers, but we're likely limiting that in, in our own portfolio. We've invested in two other companies. Fresh Bellies is one out of New York, and that's a adolescent youth uh, food company led by Latina entrepreneur. And Drinksmith, led uh, by two folks here in Los Angeles, which is a craft cocktail company. All companies are great. All founders are great. But they're, they're unique. They're unique from an economic standpoint and, and what it takes uh, to get that going. For us, it was interesting to look into. I think we're going to limit our exposure to CPG tech, but I think there's all kinds of opportunities there. When you say CPG tech, the technology um, side of the equation, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about e-commerce on the distribution side? Or are you more talking about actual product innovation? I think it has to be both. And, uh, you know, the companies we're looking at now just... You know, from a traditional direct-to-consumer standpoint, marketing following on Instagram, being able to survey your customers, 
uh, technology that allows you to understand the usage, behavior, and use experience of your customers. All that is important. So that's from a outward looking customer acquisition, customer engagement, customer tracking standpoint. You know, that's, that's super important. And that is essential in our view to a CPG tech company. But I also think there needs to be some innovation on the product side. And so whether that's ingredients, whether that is process and the way you're manufacturing, or whether that's the actual, you know, packaging. And so you look at Drinksmith, for example, and this is the craft cocktail company, and they have IP around their the bottle. And so this vessel of, uh, that carries two chambers, one chamber is for high-end quality spirits, and the other chamber is for organic high-end juice that do not touch each other. Uh, as soon as they touch each other, they mix and you go through a, a process of uh, deterioration. And so you want to keep them separate. And these guys developed that, that, that process and they've, you know, they've patented it. And so we see that as a great added value you know, for that product. I was very fortunate to have both Brandon and Lawrence on the show from Drinksmith. They're, they're both fantastic and kind of explain how it took a long time for them to develop that actual product innovation because it truly was innovative, focusing on the bottle and the actual transportation of cocktails versus starting you know, another alcohol brand, which I think is really interesting. Do you think on the CPG side of things that there needs to be some type of product innovation in order for a founder to where it makes sense for venture capital to get involved? Yeah, if, if we're talking purely, you know, the product stamp, you know, product company versus a quote unquote CPG tech company that maybe supplies the rails or the infrastructure for distribution. But we're talking about a real product company. I think that uh, that is specialized enough where uh, you need folks that really know the business as investors. And, and I do believe there's an opportunity there and potentially a need for venture behind companies like this. But ultimately, it goes back to the LPs and uh, who's putting the money in behind the investor. And if an LP says, look, I'm looking for X times returns within this time frame, et cetera, well, it may be that you're not going to get behind a very early stage product company that might require many years to get to some level of critical mass to be a target of a more established you know, consumer product company. So I think that you really have to kind of design a fund to be able to do this. Why are you thinking about maybe taking a step back from investing in you know, CPG and focusing on, on tech? And how do you also think about portfolio return when it comes to CPG? When you invest in any company in the early stage, you know they're going to need more money at some point, all of them. And, and that's just part of the deal. When, you, when we invest in a CPG, you know, a natural CPG company, not only do you know they're going to need more money, but they're going to need meaningful money to do brick and mortar stuff. And whether that's buying a new uh, vat to produce something and it's, you know, a 200 liter vat, whether it's a new uh, conveyor system to run, you know, whether it's to outsource or build something, whether it's the packaging, there's going to be some real requirements there when it comes to, it's almost like saying uh, it's a hardware company, right? So when you survey 100 VC funds out of anywhere and you say, how many of you would do a hardware based company, you know, very few hands go up. You know, most people want pure software. And, and I think that if you wanted to include another category here is how many of you would do CPG companies? <laughs> you know, I think few companies, few hands would go up. It would not be the majority by, by a long shot. 
it, everybody wants to do software. It's it's scalable, it's cash efficient. You've, you're going to know pretty quickly if this is going to work or not, and you can get it out there. So I think that's why there's hesitancy for us around CPG is that it's a unique animal. It, it is not a software company. It's not exactly a hardware company. It's something else that I think you really do need some expertise. And number one, and two, you need, uh, again, LPs and investors in your fund who understand the unique scaling you know, dimensions and, and profiles of these kinds of companies. And that's going to take a while. So I, I think it's absolutely possible. And I think there's a great opportunity there for the right structured fund. We talked about the show a little bit too about how maybe investors looking at what was happening in different markets. China, for example, is very interesting on the e-commerce side and you know retail side and thinking what types of interesting pieces of technology will actually come over to the West and what kind of won't. Doing kind of um, analysis about that. I'm curious, c- considering that you know you lived in Argentina, you lived in Mexico, you you were around on the private equity side, um, a lot of companies that are in Latin America. Are there any big themes or trends that you're seeing either in the technology side, it could be in also in, in CPG, but that you're seeing that maybe could actually bring income to the United States? From a CPG standpoint, I see companies that are very well known in Latin America uh, that are entering the US. They're not entering the US so much as a CPG tech company, there it's a more of a brick and mortar entry in, into the U.S. So uh, brands that uh, have a following, and they could be anything from like a salsa brand, a tortilla brand, a bread brand, a beer brand, you know, etc. You're seeing a lot of this coming up, and, and I think it doesn't take too long for folks that like to go out and have a drink to you know go to the local bar, and you went from one tequila, you know, Cuervo to, you know, a hundred tequilas and a hundred brands, you know, what, and what felt like, you know, overnight in, in most places. So from a spirit standpoint and beverage standpoint, you see a lot of this, um, depending on where you are, there's a, even like sodas, there's sodas, uh, Jarritos is a, is a very well-known brand. Parrilitos is another word. These are Mexican brands that now you find all over the U S. Uh, so it's not just spirits, but it's just other beverages too. There's holiday uh, beverages that are now also sold here in the U.S. that you would never see here before and, and brands that are being licensed here. So th- that's happening a lot. Uh, when it comes to the technology side of things, I don't necessarily see that uh, yet. What I see is more of a application of technologies throughout Latin America that maybe were born in the U.S. to leverage products and brands in their respective countries. So whether it's Mexico or Colombia or Argentina, I, I see that happening. So I see the technology going down that way, and I see products coming up this way. Got it. That's kind of really interesting. On the in the consumer side, you're seeing more maybe exporting from the Latin um, America base to the United States with products that are maybe are are very culturally um, that that have that are very culturally relevant, have rich heritages, um, and kind of bringing those to the United States. But on the uh, maybe technology side, you're seeing you know maybe you, the United States in terms of uh, some of the applications, or maybe as as an exporter um, uh, to Latin America, which is interesting. Mike, I don't want to say that that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just one way. Th- there are some companies that I have seen that are technology companies that are logistics oriented and that have been created for logistics purposes in Latin America that are making their way to the U.S. as well. First, to fundraise. And, and second is to begin to expand into the U.S. So the virtual warehouse 
kind of example uh, where instead of having one central warehouse where everything has to go in and out of, you know, you now have these virtual warehouses throughout communities or cities. Uh, I see companies like that that were started in Latin America that are now coming to the U.S. and expanding here. So it's I think it's still much more technology going south and product going north, but there are exceptions. So how do you approach sourcing opportunities and identifying and all the way through from sourcing all the way through your due diligence process and identifying, you know, the entrepreneurs that you want to back and and work with? So for our fund, Vamos Ventures, our mandate is to invest in diverse teams and in particular Latinx entrepreneurs at the early stages. So that is our mandate. Uh, So our top level funnel, uh, and by the way, um, you don't put money into this fund unless you believe that there are high quality, world-class entrepreneurs who happen to be diverse or Latinx. If you don't believe that, then you you don't put money in this fund. So that's your first hypothesis. I believe that diverse and Latinx entrepreneurs exist, that are world-class, they exist. Okay, that's checkbox number one. Number two is I believe that these entrepreneurs exist and they're starting tech-driven companies. Okay, check. Number three, I believe they exist, are starting tech-driven companies and are addressing meaningful problems and challenges that impact a lot of people and can be very large, right? And then you go from there. And before you know it, you're like any other fund asking the same questions any other fund will ask. What's your addressable market size? You know, how are you going to acquire customers? You know, how, you know, what are the right economics for this particular product? What is unique about your service or your offering that other people don't have or see? Why are you the best team to execute on this on this uh, uh, idea, et cetera? These are the, the questions that almost any VC will ask for regarding their founders. For us... We ask those questions, but we also look for other indicators to validate. We have 25 teams so far that we've invested in. Some of those teams are pretty impressive in that what they've had to go through in their lives to get to where they are. And when you compare some of the challenges that they've had to go through, either as immigrants or as uh, growing up in in very challenging environments in this country, uh, you kind of look at the tech company and say, this should be a breeze for you because... Uh, to survive X, Y, or Z is, is, is pretty impressive. Then we have other uh, folks that uh, you know, have very unique insight to products or communities or consumers that are, that are Latinx. So we look for, if you're going to develop a product for this community, what do you really know about this community? And we see folks that are born, raised, have lived, are leaders in, et cetera, in these communities. So we'll ask these additional questions, but... I. You know, the, the 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 genesis of the questions, though, are, I don't think are unique to what uh, to what most VCs will ask. We just tend to look for indicators that might be present that other VCs may not be looking for. How do you also, if they are, you know, these are some of the founders I'd imagine that you're backing are, you know, very overlooked, maybe don't quite have the, you know, connections that you might have that maybe you you need to have in terms of raising venture capital or funding. I've had on investors that say, you know, we're, we're really open to, we kind of respond to every email and we're very, very open to finding people that are, you know, overlooked. I've also had investors that say, if you're not in my network, I'm not interested, period. I'm kind of curious, what's your kind of way to really be, you know, welcoming, inviting and kind of really invested in the community where, you know, you can actually then 
um, evaluate an opportunity in, in a very real way and not just take it seriously? There are teams that we see that are uh, that run the run the gamut. And some of them are very well connected. They're diverse teams, but they're very well connected. And they're on the third or fourth company, and they're not going to have trouble, you know, raising money. And uh, and that's great. We want some of those companies in our portfolio, of course. And then we have other companies that that we see that are not very well connected at all, and they've been very focused on their careers, their jobs, whatever, and now are becoming entrepreneurs and been successful and maybe raising some friends and family money. But this is a big part of the diligence process is, can these folks raise money? Will they be able to raise a follow-on round? Do they understand the way things work? You know, that has got to be part of the, the, the question. But can that keep somebody out to your comment about other funds? For, for sure, it, it can. I don't want to say that we will invest in you know, we'll remove names and so on. And we just invest in the quote, best teams. Being part of networks is important. You're, if you're a founder out there, uh, I would be thinking about, don't wait till you need a fundraise. Start getting out there as soon as possible. Start going to events, start meeting folks, start building relationships with the VCs around you or the ones that you think are the most likely to understand your business and just start developing relationships. Because at one day you will want to raise money and somebody on the other side will say, oh yeah, I think I remember this guy or, or yeah, I know this guy. And that sometimes will qualify for being part of the network versus I've never heard of this person before. They're, they got a funny last name or they look very different than me or whatever. And especially in these economic times, the, the knee jerk reaction is, I don't need to take any additional risk. I'm going to just keep going with the folks that I already know. No, that's that's really helpful, and I I completely agree. I think that if you even want to be an entrepreneur, and, and maybe the idea that you've been thinking about pursuing, where it actually it would only make sense for venture capital, like the opportunity is so large, and that be maybe is the only way that you would be able to survive. Then try to build relationships with VCs if you can, and investors and people that are actually out there that actually maybe down the road might then back you because you already have a relationship. So that's awesome. What were some of the biggest learnings? I know you also founded a company as well. What were some of the biggest takeaways and learnings that that you've had when you were an entrepreneur? It's funny because I, I always tell uh, entrepreneurs today that it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. And I think most people agree with that. We raised a total of maybe 10 million bucks and we spent half of it on servers. We bought servers and nobody had these, didn't exist. And most people were on dial-up or DSL. So we are living in uh, the golden age where everybody's connected. Generally speaking, the internet's super reliable. People are very comfortable and familiar with inputting uh, personal and financial data into you know, whatever interface you're using, you can rent and lease whatever you want to lease. Part of my learnings were that you have got to be as efficient as, as possible because you just don't know what will happen. When we were running our business, 9-11 happened. The internet bubble imploded, then 9-11 happened. Who expected these things to happen in succession? Uh, nobody. So you immediately had a pivot and immediately had a like, and so you, you need to be, you always need to be thoughtful about that old saying, hope for the best, prepare for the worst type situation. I think that's really important. Um, other th learnings that I've had that I think are really important today as an investor, what I look for is a very curious founder. And I don't mean that this founder needs to understand astronomy and, you know, uh, farming techniques and how a F-16 works. That's, that's not what I mean by curiosity. I mean, if, if that founders tell me about their user base 
is a thousand folks and they are in the uh, ed tech space, for example, I'll ask, well, how many of those thousand users, if they're students, how many of them are freshmen? Uh, how many of them go to public school versus private school? How many of them take science classes versus liberal arts or their majors? How many of them men versus women? How many of them are in California? If I don't get like immediate answers for these kinds of things, uh, that's weird. That's weird. And if you're running a CPG company and you have early traction and your potential investor asks you, who's your number one customer that's buying your product today? And you can't give a name or or maybe you say like uh, it's these two people. One lives in Fontana. The other one lives in, you know, uh, Butte, Idaho. And this is who they are. And I've talked to them. This is what they love about it. Seriously. Right. And uh, you've got to be able to do this. But my favorite customers are these customers. They buy this product. And what's interesting, they only buy it on a Tuesday. So I called them. Why do you only buy it on a Tuesday? So when you're starting a business and you're early stage enough, and, and you should always be t- talking to your customers, but when you're early stage enough and I, I see a founder and they have 100 users or, or 500 users, I will always say, how many of these folks have you talked to? And if they say five, it's like, really? And if, I mean, take one day off or take two days off and call every single one of them, right? And so that kind of curiosity and tenacity is something that I learned from back in the day that we really needed to to really understand because you couldn't rely on technology, honestly. You really, it was old school sales and understanding. And I think that uh, you need that today more than ever. Yeah, I I agree. We've had on a couple of entrepreneurs too when they talk to customers. It's even helping help them too in terms of their product positioning that they can learn because they can understand how a customer maybe describes a product. What do they actually like? Maybe what are the some of the features they like? And sometimes they're kind of blown away because they didn't really think about phrasing it quite that way or or what have you that maybe simplifies the message more. And so it actually could really be a benefit on the next go round for packaging or even just how they actually market the business. So. Exactly. You know, the other thing is that um, I see a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll say, we have a wait list of 5,000 and we have uh, 100 beta users that we have sold to. And so this clearly, you know, we're clearly going to kill it. I, I always think, I don't know who your wait list is and who's on that. And I don't know who your beta is. But, you know, my experience was that you can... You know, anybody can buy a box of donuts and set up shop on the corner down here and have a hundred customers in a day. That doesn't mean that's a business. So I think that taking very few data points to give you direction and to assume you figured it out is a mistake. If it actually is uh, directionally correct, then I think that's a happy coincidence. But when it comes to CPG specifically, when it's product based, uh, you really do need to be super engaged with a consumer, talk to them, know who they are, be in front of them when they use it, et cetera. Um, because it's even a thousand users, literally anybody could sell anything to a thousand people. doesn't mean it's going to be a great business. Exactly. I think we had one entrepreneur too that said that you can always sell one thing to somebody, but it's a question of you know retention. Are they actually going to come back for more or, or come back for that same product? Uh, that's really then when you actually know that you actually have something versus not. Same as software too, if it's a you know SaaS company on, on subscription. Will they actually renew? Will they not? Same thing. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Well, I really like, this is, good, this is an odd book that 
I don't know if anybody's read, but do you remember back in high school uh, or college, uh, you were required to read certain uh, old classics, and one of them was The Fountainhead. Uh, I don't, I don't know, uh, Mike, if you've heard of this or you've read it. Yeah, but, uh, Anne Rand, uh, The Fountainhead, Anne Rand. and she may be controversial, but that is one of my most favorite books because I really do think that any entrepreneur uh, doing anything, whether you're in tech or outside of tech, I think I think you it's a healthy thing to want to be great. It's a healthy thing to have a vision and believe that this vision is gonna is great and that you by extension are great and you want to prove that out. I, I think that's a powerful thing. So if there's an entrepreneur out there that's not thinking that they're great or uh, innately great, that's that's a question mark to me. No, that's that's great. We had um, I don't know if you know Jeff Hausenbold. He used to be um, a managing director at SoftBank. He also when he came on the show, we also recommended Fountainhead by Unrend. My final question for you is maybe what's one piece of advice? I know you've shared now a number of learnings here, but what are maybe a couple maybe additional pieces of advice that you have for entrepreneurs? Not every company is VC backable or should have VC dollars behind it. It's okay. Number two, uh, if you do want to raise VC dollars and, and have investors around you, then make sure that you're getting folks around you that believe in your mission and believe in you and are going to support you. Uh, number three, uh, it's challenging to raise money. It doesn't matter who you are. It is very hard to do. And one of the tricks that I use uh, to try to get to those folks to come into the fund, for example, was to stop for a second and say, I need to find the folks who exist today in the world that are already looking for me. Who's out there right now thinking, I wish I could find a fund like Vamos Ventures to put my money into? Who are they? And what do they look like? And where could they possibly be? And then, and then find them. And I think that it's a, it's a little bit of an exercise and, and trick, but I think doing it can, be, can save you a lot of time in, in terms of fundraising. So I think that's really important uh, as well. And then finally, sales is not a bad word. And I, I don't see a lot of founders out there who embrace sales or the, or the sales function. And that is, that is key. And so you, you have two kinds of employees in your, in your company. The ones that cost you money and the ones that make you money. And the sales guys are the ones that are going to make you money. You want to make sure you're, you're focused on that and you have folks on the team that are making money and not costing money. Marcos, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. You bet, Mike. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Marcos. I really appreciate him coming on the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 